he essentially got fired or kicked out of both of the companies he ran. Clearly, he was difficult to work with at times. These, these people who really dent the world tend to be difficult. Spark Nation. I'm Jim Wyant, founder of ETF.com and CEO of Spark Network. And this is Pennies from Heaven, a podcast featuring choice insights and lively debate with all the biggest names in the ETF world and beyond. Join us each week to receive Pennies from Heaven straight from the nattering nabobs of investment as they discuss hot button topics and what's to come. Hi, everyone. This is Jim Wyant, and I am here with Eric Bauchunas, who's the ETF guru at Bloomberg. And we're going to talk about Jack Bogle today. Interesting, you as an ETF guru, Jack Bogle had a very mixed past with ETFs. He you know, is thought of as the, the father of retail index investing, but he wasn't always pro-ETF. So I'm just interested that you decided to write a book about Jack Bogle. Talk to me about why that is and what you think about his views on ETFs. Yeah. So the reason I decided to dive into a book project on him, which the working title is The Bogle Effect, it's a riff off of the Vanguard Effect, which if you're like me and you watch flows, you realize that like almost every dime, if you pull the thread on it, you go back to Bogle's brain in 1974 to set up Vanguard as a mutual ownership structure. That one decision, that one thing is almost where everything else spills out of. I get indexing was around in the academic and institutional worlds, but my thesis in the book is that if Bogle hadn't existed, I think it would be 5% what it is today. I think he should get credit for 95% of it. And I know from my history of writing with ETFs and I wrote an ETF book, I interviewed the people who founded the ETF. Nate Most wasn't alive, but Steve Bloom was. And I interviewed Bogle also about this. And the story I was able to piece together was that Bogle was first approached by Nate Most to do the first ETF. Nate thought they will get the Vanguard 500 to be our ETF. So instead of SPY, it would have been BUY or VU. Uh, Bogle, of course, was like, no fucking way. <laughs> he was like, get out of here. Trading is like the last thing he wants. Probably Trading is probably a worse sin to him than actual cost. But that said, he didn't, he thought Nate was a great guy. They were friendly. And Bogle even gave him some suggestions on his design. And then Nate Most goes and makes a deal with State Street. So Bogle, A, had some feedback on the ETF structure. And B, Nate Most priced it at 20 basis points because that's where Vanguard 500's index mutual fund was at the time. So had Vanguard not been already out there doing their thing, ETFs probably would have come out just like everybody else at 80 to 100 basis points. They would not have been the retail phenomenon they are at that price tag. The whole reason indexing works is because it's cheap and it's only cheap because of the mutual ownership structure of Vanguard. No one else would have done this voluntarily. And that's another thing that fascinated me about him is a lot of companies will come out with uh, lower fee products largely because they have to. And then they might try to upsell you on something over here, or uh, in the case of trading platforms, it's pay for order flow. Vanguard's one of those companies that they actually want you in the cheap stuff. <laughs> and that's like the goal. And so I just found uh, that and him to be just utterly fascinating. So as I open the book, I say, look, if you're in the financial industry, you're probably going to be insulted 
uh, sometime in this book because he was savage towards just about everything and everyone. And I said, I'm an ETF analyst. He came hard at ETFs many times, but you know, in the, he was even savage to Vanguard and I have a whole chapter on their battles. And then he trashed himself on occasion. I mean, so he was equal opportunity, but I try to just tell people, look, um, just enjoy this force of nature. Um, man that just came and did it differently. I, I equate him to a cross uh, between Steve Jobs and Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, the Reformation guy, in the way he just, he really did reform the industry from the inside out. And so I, there's so much to mine there. And I had three and a half hours of interviews with him in the five years before he passed away. And I thought that I would regret it if I didn't remove them from the dictaphone and get them on paper. Yeah, amazing man, amazing story. Had this sort of pure messianic power of just having the truth with him and like really stuck to that, like all through his life and continued to fight that fight. So what do you think Jack Bogle would say today looking at the investment landscape? So in the book, I have a chapter called Free Trading with an exclamation point. And that's probably the chapter where we didn't get his take, but we could imagine his take. And, you know, Robin Hood, Wall Street Bets. I asked a few people, what do you think he would say? And some of the things they imagined him saying were very funny. But yeah, he would have dropped his colorful, Bogle-esque grandfather assassin savagery, saying things like, I don't even have an intelligent comment for that, or idiots. You know, he would, it would be raw. I mean, he would slam all of it. In that chapter, I do discuss Wall Street Bets and the way Wall Street Bets has targeted hedge fund short sellers and driven the, the price of these highly shorted stocks up because they want to get back at the man. And I break down that they've really just generated hundreds of millions in trading fees for Wall Street. And there's going to be retail bag holders. So I, I sort of say, your instinct to think Wall Street might be too big for its britches and, and you want to like get back, buying and holding an index fund, to me, Bogle figured this out. That's how you do it. You, you just, that can, nobody touches your money. It grows slowly over time. There's no turnover. There's no fees. Nobody gets rich, but you, when you buy that. So to me, I equate it to the, the movie war games where the only winning move is not to play, but I think it's not as fun. It takes a lot of patience to go that route, but I do find there was a, some similarities between some of the angst. I think uh, the populism in the Wall Street bets crowd and where Bogle would have been coming from. But that said, their tact, he would have just trashed. That said, there's a, I look at Vanguard, which went commission-free on the ETF front well before most of the big brokerages did. So in a way, I think Vanguard forced the issue because the time you had like 300 commission-free, but then the rest you'd have to pay a commission. Mm -hmm. And the only ones that were commission-free were the ones the ETF issuer would pay the brokerage platform. Mm -hmm. But then Vanguard, because TD Ameritrade messed with them, decided to just go commission-free for all 1,800 at once, minus the leverage ETFs. And to me, that was an important domino in what created commission-free. But then I explore how free actually might be really a bad thing. Like if you charge the little, it might actually help society behaviorally, because once something's free, people go crazy. So it's a complex scene over there. Outside of that, I think crypto, he's already commented on that. He said, stay the hell away from it. Uh, don't touch it. Again, I think DeFi, and you know, I always called Vanguard is the OG of DeFi. Like I said, they are out of the system. You go to Vanguard, you're, all your money is out of the system. Mm -hmm. It's out of the banks. It's out of this. It's out of that. So Vanguard is DeFi. I think he was just 50 years ahead of his time on that. 
I think crypto, again, some of the spirit I think he would appreciate, but he would put crypto in the world of commodities where there's no internal rate of return. There's no earnings growth, no dividends. You're not actually, there's nobody creating value there for you. You're just going to buy it hoping somebody pays more for it when you sell it. And so I think that he would have been the same crypto and commodities would have been grouped together for Vogel as not really worth the investment. And because there isn't that internal rate of return. That said, I do think there's spiritually some connections between crypto and Vogel. I think it's really interesting that point of, of raising the sort of parallels between kind of the populist, you know, GameStop crowd that's out there and that righteousness that was with Bogle. It just seems like it's misdirected and mischanneled. And there's no one really beating that drum, which is a really simple drum to beat, you know, like lowest cost possible, broad diversification, save money, let it sit there. That's all it is, right? Like friends and relatives will ask me for advice. And I'm like, I can give you all the advice you need in like two minutes. It's not complicated. Yeah, it's so simple. It's actually heavily ironic that it's that simple. So Bogle has this story in in some of his books. I think in two of his books, he tells called The Hedgehog and the Fox. And the idea, the parable, it's a children's story. It's basically a fox who thinks of these clever ways to get the hedgehog. And all the hedgehog does every time the fox gets close is just go into a ball of spikes and the fox retreats. And the story is that the foxes know many things, but the hedgehog just knows one great thing. And he uses that a lot to say that Vanguard investors is like the hedgehog. You just need to know one, this one great thing, and you don't have to worry about all those clever things. What do you think about the state of Vanguard now? What would Jack Bogle say about Vanguard now? And certainly he said plenty about it when he was alive. Um, well, what do you think he would say now? When I went to visit him in one of our interviews, he just, I remember him going like, 3.2 trillion. What the hell's going on? I even wrote a book called Enough. And he just trashed the asset level. Now they have double that now. <laughs> they have $7.3 trillion. I mean, a lot of that's market appreciation assets growth, right? I think the stat I had is something like 86% of their assets came after 2004. So after they were 25 years old. That's an astounding amount. It was like gradually and then suddenly. Mm-hmm. And I think this might go back to the Jack Brennan days where, you know, Bogle was booted off the board, so to speak. And he had a falling out with, with Brennan and Brennan did ETFs. Brennan went international, Brennan expanded. And that was not under Bogle's watch. And so one thing I had that was difficult in the book was untangling Bogle's perhaps personal resentment towards some of those things, his feelings, mm-hmm. versus him just being Bogle and giving you his honest take on all these things. Because on one hand, he'd say, all these other fun shops, they're not getting cheap enough, they're not good enough. But then he'd say, Vanguard's too big. You can't really have that both ways. That said, one of the things that amazed me about him, and, and this blows my mind that anybody would write this, but in his one of his book, Character Counts, He says, I'll know that our mission is complete when our market share begins to erode. And I just felt like who has ever wished for their market share to erode? But he says that's because in order for our market share to erode, everybody else will have had to raise their game Mm -hmm. 
in terms of low cost and stewardship. And I well, found the that market so, share hasn't eroded, but basis it's, it's, points have definitely gone down. It's their market share is creeping up still. And but it would be way higher had there not been more competition from the likes of BlackRock, Fidelity, and Schwab. Mm -hmm. So, but they haven't done enough where it's actually slowed their market share growth, which is currently Vanguard is 28% of fund assets. By the way, the last high watermark was 14%. So they're double where any other company's been. But here's the kicker. They only make up 5% of the revenue. So 29% market share, 5% revenue share. That has to be a record ratio for any industry. I, I didn't do well, enough. Well, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence, right. <laughs> Maybe Amazon is similar. I don't know. But so anyway, Vanguard's growth, I think he uh, just struggled with. Um, and ETFs he struggled with. And now... The fact that people are transferring from the index mutual fund into the ETF, because now the ETF share class is cheaper, I think that would have bugged them. I think removing the ship logo probably would have been hurtful. They took the ship away. Um, and they thought that they also removed the at cost and nonprofit. There's some language in, in the documents they removed after he passed away. Probably, I don't know if that's as concerning, but I think, you know, oh, they went into private equity. Although when you talk to Vanguard and you go over these different issues, you can see their side of things. So as I went into the book, uh, of course, Vogel presents himself as the hero in every battle. But when you talk to people who were there, you get a more balanced picture. There was definitely personal, right? Like the ETF thing, I always felt yeah. like that was a personal thing. Like he was opposed and it happened and he almost like reflexively opposed it. And you know, I think he came around to a degree through time, and I'm sure you probably saw this talking with him to even say that some of that trading activity of like the hedge funds or whoever's in there is part of the reason why it's a very efficient vehicle and tax efficient and, and whatever else. So it became more nuanced over time, but I definitely thought some of that was just personal with him. It's complicated. And so Gus Souter, who was really a, a crucial interview for me, I didn't know this. Gus said that he pushed the ETF because he kept thinking about big sell-offs. He had just lived through the Asian contagion and he was started at Vanguard right a month before the 87 crash. And Bogle worried the same thing. We've got to be ready. Bogle focused on the call center in terms of being ready. But Gus was thinking about the fund and they had also had a thing with short-term traders trying to come into the index fund and just hold mm -hmm. it for a minute. And they didn't like that. So they had to turn down money. The ETF solved that. It gave something for the short-term traders to use, and it gave uh, a liquidity buffer so that if you had to sell something, you could just sell out of that first, or the ETF could be traded in concert with the index mutual fund. So they thought the ETF would provide protection for the index fund investors. In the end, the distribution coup of the ETF took over the narrative because it obviously spread indexing and Vanguard everywhere because you could get ETFs everywhere. You don't have to go to Vanguard anymore. Vanguard could come to you now. That said, Souter said that he met with Jack in like 2014 at a private party and really explained this to him. And he thinks that's where he came around a little more. Also, he thought, I think he saw the trading volume in the Vanguard ETFs wasn't nearly as crazy as the other ones. That probably gave him some comfort. So at the end of his life, he really got into this thing, which was uh, of course, I'm not against ETFs if you buy and hold them, you know, the broad market ones. But then he couldn't just let that hang. He would pivot to, but you don't buy and hold them. People trade them and there's a bunch of crazy shit out there. Zarr, you know, like, so 
But he did give me the first thing. He would do the olive branch, but then he kind of take yeah. it away. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So, so let's I talk about ever. Couldn't ever get comfortable with him. Let's talk about him saying Vanguard had gotten too big. And so, I, I guess two part question: What do you think he meant by that, and and why he thought that was a bad thing? And then, second part it's obviously become a huge issue, stewardship and huge concentrations of assets with a few gigantic asset managers who basically can really influence company policy. And there's a huge debate over what, to what extent they should or shouldn't. So those are the two parts to my question. What did he mean by it? And did he have thoughts on the stewardship issues? Um, yes. And uh, I cover them quite a bit because uh, I have a chapter where I go through all of the worries on passive and ETFs, and I, I give the worry and then I somewhat refute them. The one that has the most strength is the voting. I think these companies have a lot of power now. But Vogel, again, there's a lot of conflict in his messaging that I have found. So for example, as his last op-ed ever was for the Wall Street Journal, where he writes, the concentration of ownership among the big three is, is too big. And he ends it with, what happens if it becomes too successful for its own good? So that's sort of what, where he left things when he left, honestly. That said, Vanguard is the biggest owner of most stocks, but they only own about 8 9%. But my guess is they are going to keep growing, I mean, a lot. And so I think they get to 10 15 Where does it stop? It has to stop probably at 2025, because at that point, all the fund, they'd, they'd be 100% of fund market share. So there is a point where they would stop. They will never be a majority owner. Some small companies, perhaps in a certain fund, they could, that could make them a majority owner, perhaps. But the other thing is, if you listen to him talk about the owners of stocks, he hates active management. He thinks they're the worst owners. They're like renters. They don't care. Index investors are like in it for the long haul. They're much better for the uh, corporations. So on one hand, he was worried about the concentration of ownership. But on the other, he really thought passive was better owners. So in the end, the only solution for him would go back to this thing where everybody in the asset management industry gets cheap very quickly and is able to put a lid on Vanguard by market forces and that they all become better stewards and owners of those companies. But it's hard to, to fit all that together to make all that make sense. There's some conflict in all of that. He also hated executive pay. <laughs> I was like, I read all those books and like every book has like basically three things. The Wellington story, he loves telling that. <laughs> it also has a, a why a active versus passive, you know, he goes into the whole why index funds are better. And then it has executive CEOs and how outrageous the pay is. And he slams those any chance he gets. One of his books is almost like solely about this. And so Vanguard has voted against the Google guy, his pay in their latest stewardship report. So I just think he'd be somewhat relieved a little bit at Vanguard taking the lead on some issues that matter to him like CEO pay. Um, but that happened after he passed away. I don't think they were as transparent and engaged with their corporate governance back in say like the 2000s. I think they're much more into it. So perhaps he would have been more relieved by that. But so I don't know, that's sort of my take on it. It's complicated. So you interviewed a ton of people for the book. What were some of the more interesting stories that you came across that you had never heard before? So, you know, David Blitzer, the S&P 500 guy? Yeah, of course. 
his take on the indexing business and how S&P, they weren't, they didn't think about an indexing licensing business. It was Bogle that, that forced this issue on them. In fact, one of the stories I heard was that they thought they were going to have to pay Vanguard for the marketing that they would get from having the S&P on the fund. And well, the, the original deal was like a flat fee, fifty thousand. Yeah, yeah, it was real. Yeah, I mean, so and Blitzer had a story where they had an anniversary of the S and P five hundred. Mm-hmm. I think it, you're involved in this actually, mm-hmm. so you can attest to this. And he said, "Look, Jack sometimes didn't know when to turn it off, and we had this nice party, and we we're supposed to talk about how oh, it's great the S and P five hundred index is whatever fifty years old. I forget what it was." It was a major milestone, and most people there were just keeping it light. Bogle came in, had all these like like papers that he wrote on the train ride down, obviously, and just just hammered ETFs and kind of went full preacher. And that stood out to Blitzer as, you know, the, the times where, where Bogle might have rubbed people the wrong way when he didn't need to. And I don't, you, he said you moderated that panel. So I thought that was an interesting story because I was trying to – get a picture of Bogle that was a little more well-rounded from like, oh, it's this St. Jack. And there is definitely a big part of that. I would say that St. Jack, in, in the beginning, I say that the framing of Bogle, even if you try to pull out all the negativity, it's still going to be net positive by a mile. That I said, mean, here's some of these things that I think uh, you could argue were somewhat character flaws. Well, he was a human being, but you know, he was an iconic human being, right? And there's a reason I think that he sits on that mantle. The other thing is he essentially got fired or kicked out of both of the companies he ran. I mean, think about that. (laughs) Wellington fired him and then Vanguard tried to get him off. Clearly he was difficult to work with at times. And you hear stories about Steve Jobs, but these these people who really dent the world tend to be difficult. The other person who was really good with stories was Ted Aronson, mm-hmm. the value investor guy who lives in Philly. And, you know, Philly was close to where Bogle lives. So they hung out a lot. And Ted was an active manager. And A, it really said a lot. He, Bogle was friends with a lot of active managers. Cliff Asnes. I mean, there, Bogle was good about, he could judge your, what you did for a living, but then completely think of you as a great person. He didn't cast you off into the, your career. He would separate the person. And, and then he could just live with the fact that you didn't agree on something. Who cares? Um, that was good because all, a lot of the active managers I uh, interviewed were pretty favorable, even though he was pretty harsh about them. But Ted had good stories about his heart. I think Bogle's heart was an underrated motivator his whole life. He was supposed to not live to the age of 40. So he was always almost going to die. And then he got the heart transplant. And Ted was saying that like no one would play squash with him because he'd bring a defibrillator, I didn't pronounce that right, onto the court. And told people like, hey, if I fall over, you got to use this thing. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so Ted was like, he's out of his mind. You know, so Ted really got to this um, idea of the endless energy he had. And some of those sort of more personal stories about him in his everyday life. There's a lot of that stuff. I, I found Gus in particular had some good stuff about turning down money. You know, I, the idea of a young company, and it's not like you're turning down money because you're in a small cap or private equity space where capacity is an issue. You have large cap stocks. You could take in all the money you want, but you don't want certain investors. I, that's that discipline to do that early on. And this is a company that's not paying for distribution. I mean, it's, it's living outside of the system and yet it's still turning down certain people for investing. 
that, that kind of a discipline really made an impact on Gus. I thought he thought at the time he was like, I, I don't get this. Like we don't want to grow assets, but this idea of like, no, because those investors will hurt the retail investor. Gus had a story called um, about this guy, Toby Choate, who apparently was a mythical average investor. And the question, every time they were going to spend money, they say, well, what would Toby Choate think? And that was supposed to be like the average, like, I don't know, 50 year old plumber whose money they were managing. And a lot of times they would just look at the decision we've made through Toby Choate's brain. And then Gus figured out Toby Choate was actually an investor. I could not find him. I Googled the crap. <laughs> if anybody knows who Toby Choate is, and he's still alive. I really wanted to interview him to get his take on this, but I couldn't. But apparently he's a real investor, one of the first Vanguard investors. But he was used a lot to make tough decisions. Do you think that there's anyone out there now who has stepped into that place, Bogle occupied, of being really kind of righteous, common sense, investor focused? Is there anyone out there who really- So a little bit, like, so first of all, I got to give BlackRock, Fidelity, Schwab some credit. A lot of these companies, some people will be like, oh, well, well, they, they went into indexing, kicking and screaming. Sure. I don't think they would have voluntarily done it, but if you talk to them, they're, they like it. Uh, They feel like their clients are getting a good deal. And I, I said this in the book that even if Bogle was tough on people and like made their life painful at the time, a lot of people like Lee Cranefuss, who was a big competitor, he ran iShares when Vanguard ETFs come out. I thought, man, hopefully Lee can give me something on how Vanguard and Bogle were a pain in his ass, but he liked it. He thought I feel the same way he does. So I think Bogle actually moved people closer to being more in tune with the client and that made them feel better. And so over the years, they, they actually appreciate it, even though it might've hurt at the time. So I give them credit. I, I don't disparage all the other asset managers. I think they've come a long way and they're part of this whole thing. So yeah. I give them credit for carrying on. If you talk to certain BlackRock or Fidelity or Schwab people, there's plenty of passive advocates there. But I would give people like Rick Ferry. I'd put Rick as a disciple, so to speak. I'd put Taylor Larimore, the head of Bogleheads. You know, Bogleheads are kind of like the disciples. I mean, their missionaries carry on Bogle's work because in the end, they're not Vanguard fans, but they're basically taking Bogleosophy and trying to spread it to the masses. And they've got a lot of reach. So the Bogleheads to me are one. Rick Ferry is sort of trying to Bogleize the advisory business. And so at the end of the book, I, I picked out 10 people who I thought were carrying the torch. And so Rick Ferry is one of those. Brad Kutsuyama at IEX, to me, he is doing almost exactly what, what Vanguard did, except for the exchanges. And it was interesting interviewing him because it's not a runaway success for them, right? It's taking a while. And I told him Vanguard didn't get to 10% market share for 25 years. And he was like, oh, you just made my day. <laughs> so I think, I think sometimes when you operate out of the system where there's kickbacks and payments and all that, it can take a while. Obviously, in Vanguard's case, that's a long time to reach that level of market share. Um, but like other people like Tyrone, who isn't necessarily a Boglehead, Tyrone Ross, but his thing with financial education, because one thing that Bogle did was he really helped the investors, but the investors are only 50% of America's population. There's still 50% who got no- nothing from Bogle. So the question is, how do you get them to participate in this? And so I tried to close that gap a little bit, like who's going to help that? And so he came to mind. Um, Someone like Dan Egan at Betterment, his, mm-hmm. what they do with behavior, I think Bogle would have loved. 
I mean, anything to help you from yourself so you can hang in there and not shoot yourself in the foot and trade at the wrong time. It's interesting, the juxtaposition between Dan Egan's job and the guy who designs Robinhood's platform. One is trying to keep somebody from trading. The other one's trying to make them trade all day. And I found that interesting. There's like a yin-yang between behavioral advisory people like Dan and the trading platform people. It's almost like this two forces against each other. And, and so th- those like, are some examples. It seems like there's just not much uptake from younger people. And I always, I always felt like that was an issue with Vanguard. Like Vanguard should be better with younger crowd. Like they were very, you know, if you had a lot of assets, then you got lower cost because of the, you know, the argument was scale with the different share classes. When, you know, that you could certainly make the case that they could stake out and be like an acorns or, and step into that, but really with values. And I think that the, with the younger generation, to the extent that they've been engaged, it's been much more on a trading basis than it's been common sense, broad diversification. Maybe that's probably part of yeah. the nature of being young. I don't know, but. Yeah, so I, I have a, some quotes from 1999, uh, you know, and they're the same. It's a bunch of young people losing their mind. I, I was in my early 20s in New York City in the late 90s. And I, I remember my roommate would buy drinks if Microsoft stock had a good day. He's not doing that now. I mean, you get, you get busy, you, get a, you, you have responsibilities, you can't fool around trading all the time. I also think millennials don't trade as much as people think. I think what millennials do is what a lot of people start to do. They barbell. They go dirt cheap Vanguard in the core, and then they go absolutely apeshit with the rest. But the apeshit stuff gets all the headlines and press. So it seems like that's all that's happening. So I don't know if they're a- as undisciplined as people think, because millennials are a big part of Vanguard's base. And also we're in a 12-year bull market or something. Things get a little crazy towards the end. So it's not necessarily a surprise that if everything's going so well for you, you don't actually start to get a little greedy and want something even that has a bigger payoff. But that said, I think that a correction will take a lot of the young people and sort of move them over to the Vanguard way, the Bogle way, which is to say, A, that was not fun to go through that. You know, I lost more than if I just gone to an index fund. B, I've got more going on now. So I, I think there's a lot of that going on. I think this is just history rhyming. Mm-hmm. That was my take on that. So when is the book coming out? Early next year. I handed in 135,000 words. Actually, I wrote 150,000. That's basically like 520 pages. But then I was able to trim off to get it down to about 450. But they want to put a book out that's about 300 tops. So I'm in the middle of trying to it's tough. Some of the stuff just, I feel like I can't cut it, but I'm like, I've got to. So this is a tough process of getting it down to the 300 and all that just takes a while, but the heart of it's done. The interviews are done. And now it's just a matter of sculpting it down to the sort of, you know, form that it will be. And then I don't think the marketing will kick in until like late in the year. You're catching me mid process. So but what's your takeaway from all that work and getting all these different perspectives on Jack Bogle And how does that vary kind of from your view of him before you went into the process? Good question. Some of it confirmed what I thought. Like I heard he didn't fly coach. I mean, his son said he wore the same khakis for like 50 years. He's got a Buffett-esque cheapness to him. He just, I didn't, he just kind of has this immunity to like wanting money or status. Most people in this industry do not have that gene. That said, what I learned was he 
had the opposite of an immunity to adoration. He could never get enough of the St. Jack thing. So even though most people go to Wall Street, they can't get enough money, yacht, et cetera. He couldn't ever get enough, you know, he was even doubtful of his own uh, contribution. Even at the end, he was always questioning it. He would light up when someone came on the street and said, oh my God, you helped me in my retirement and that whole thing. So I, I think that was something I learned. You know, I didn't totally know that inside stuff. I also didn't realize just how freaking serendipitous every single part of the Bogle story had to be for it all to play out. For example, in Princeton, he has to get a senior thesis going. He goes into the library and he had to just pick up Fortune. And the, I look at the cover. There's actually no, nothing on there to tell you what's in it. It's just got a cover of like a townhouse or something. Deep in there in the magazine is an article, Big Money in Boston. So he decides, I'm going to do my thesis on this new mutual fund industry. I was like, what if he picked up time? And I looked, that time was Conrad Hilton was on the cover. It was like, what if I had the Bogle Hotel, cheap hotel business? Had he picked up time? Isn't that, a, that's just, those little things in life are crazy. Then at Wellington, obviously getting fired, he, I think he would have stayed at Wellington forever if he could. Um, the idea that he went to try to team up with a growth company and the people he teamed up with were like fifth on his list. American Fund said no. Franklin said no. Had he teamed up with one of them, the people who were a little less growthy and he was friendlier with them, maybe there wouldn't have been a falling out equals no Vanguard. It had to take this extremely vicious, nasty ass situation where they hated him, he hated them. And the mutual ownership structure was a way to save his job and get back at them. I won't go into every little detail, but that's the only way that could have happened because there's literally no economic incentive to ever do that structure. And that's why nobody's copied it in 50 years. So it took this freak accident situation to do that. And then the index fund, they weren't allowed to manage money. And so they saw the index fund, they wanted to grow and they wanted to like get back at Wellington. And they figured, but we can't manage money. So they heard about indexing. And again, there's no real motive to go into index funds if you're in the asset management business, unless you're in this situation where it doesn't mean you're managing money and you have this structure where you, it's perfect fit. So all of those things are really, really small odds. And all of them had to happen. So it's the fragility of all of these events that had to happen for this explosion of an $11 trillion passive asset business. And then you can't discount his sheer evangelism. You, you take the, if, if he was a mild-mannered guy, I, just, I don't think a lot of this happens either. So it, it's just like this. If he, had, if he had gotten into like a completely different field, do you think that he would have had like a similarly dramatic effect or was part of it that there was just such an alignment of all these different circumstances that enabled him to really be evangelical? So um, a mix of both. I think he got a chip on his shoulder after, because remember, Walter Morgan gave him Wellington and said, this is your company now. We're losing assets because it was the 60s growth era. Fix it. So here is his mentor, guy who gave him his first job. And he goes and teams up with this company and they turn Wellington into a balance fund, into a, like an equity fund. And it actually didn't buffer any of the losses in the early 70s from the S&P 500. It literally acted like an equity fund. He must have felt such self-betrayal. Why did I do this? That chip on his shoulder 
who I think was massive. Imagine Michael Jordan constantly didn't make the JP. So I don't know if he didn't have a, that chip on his shoulder, if he would have amounted to as much. That also helped him to have the discipline to not take the bait in the cycles. He always, if you look at his speeches from the mid eighties, when everyone's like doing cocaine and getting rich, he's talking about cost. You could tell he's just completely, no matter what era it is, seventies, eighties, nineties, his message, you can't tell what year it is. And I think he learned to never take the bait of the cycle. And I think that really also helped him. So the circumstance, I would give 50%, but his just sheer personality and evangelism, I give the other 50. And I have a chapter that just tries to break down what may, what, what goes into making him. And I think he'd have some success in any industry because of that makeup. But the circumstance in the 60s, I think you can't underrate that either. And so there was a couple of people who were like, well, he's sort of virtue by necessity. And, and I, I know what they mean. His virtueness came because he had to do this thing to save his job. And there was some times when he actually defended active when he was at Wellington in the same way he defended passive. So you get the feeling that he might've been evangelical anywhere. Like I said, that's why this is such a fun experiment. And because when you write a book, you got it's like going and living on a planet for a year. You got to say, do I want to live on this planet for a year? And so I knew there was a lot to discover on planet Vogel. And I did. And it was a nice place to be. I feel like I'm better off hanging out in that atmosphere. I definitely learned a lot uh, for sure. And it was almost somewhat like hanging out with my grandfather a little bit. Vogel was a World War II generation guy. He was not a boomer. And some of his phrasings and just just the, his style, like his oil paintings of ships on the wall and stuff, that was kind of nice too. Because that generation is not accessible to me anymore. So it was like kind of getting to go and, and spend a little time with that World War II generation. I can't wait to read it. It sounds like you took a really good approach to his life and, and really trying to understand the man and all the circumstances in a clear-eyed way, which is fun. But I will say it's not a straight biography. Even though I have a chapter where I go into how active mutual funds missed an opportunity. I have a chapter about behavior. Uh, because I do think Bogle's effect is in these different areas. But that said, there's a nice chunk of biographical elements and a ton of quotes. But I do say at the beginning, it's not a straight biography. Mm -hmm. It's more of a tour through the, what I consider the Bogle effect. But that includes a lot of him. Hopefully it, it lives up to uh, your, your expectations. <laughs> Who knows, man? I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I feel lighter or I will when it's done, having gotten it out. And, Once you get uh, rid of those extra few hundred thousand words or whatever. I don't know. Like I'm keeping them on a page. I'm like, maybe they'll come in handy. Maybe I'll use them somewhere else some, some other time. I don't know. Um, and there's some tough stuff I had to cut. I was listening to Martin Scorsese talk about, he always hands in like a four hour movie. And then he, he doesn't like letting the studio cut it. He has to cut it, but he says it's fucking brutal. But you know, it's, it's about rhythm and flow. And sometimes you have to sacrifice the best quote ever to just move the reader forward. Mm -hmm. That's, I guess the, the way I would describe it. Well, congratulations on nearly being at the end of the road. Good luck with the final edit. And thanks for coming and uh, talking to us about Jack Bogle. It was a nice trip down memory lane. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Pennies from Heaven was produced by Spark Network, Jim Wyant and Elizabeth Thompson. 
Our theme music is Pearl Charles's Take Your Time. You can find her music at pearlcharlesmusic.bandcamp.com. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and sparknetwork.com. Thank you.